Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show. What happened is we ran into this period with the biggest housing demographic patch ever and the lowest mortgage rates ever. The Housing Market with Logan Motoshami. The housing market is something that affects literally everybody in some way or another. And if you've been following economic news here in the U.S., then you'll know that the price of housing has really shot up in the past year to the point where a lot of people who follow this market are worried about an affordability crisis. And I think the temptation is to tie this trend to the COVID pandemic, which is obviously the big event that has so radically changed all our lives in so many ways. And it seems like maybe... This is one of them. But actually, today's guest, Logan Motoshami, has been predicting this big spike in home prices since well before the pandemic. Logan is the lead analyst at Housing Wire, where he writes about the housing market and the U.S. economy. And before that, he spent a few decades at a real estate firm. So he has direct experience in this market. And Logan's been saying for a while that during the years 2020 to 2024, so we're halfway through, housing prices would climb to uncomfortable levels, as in fact they have. And this is a result of a number of coinciding trends that were easy to spot and that we've been seeing in the economy for some years now. And in our chat, Logan and I talk about all the different things that have been driving home prices upwards in the last few years and about what might happen in the next few years. And we also talk about the ways that housing is such a different and even unique kind of asset, one that's so much more personal than stocks or bonds or really anything else, and about how our relationship to the housing market also affects the way we make decisions about it. I've been wanting to have this chat with Logan for a while, and I'm really glad that we finally got to have it. Here it is. Logan Motoshami, uh, welcome to The New Bazaar. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. I was doing a little bit of background research on you before the chat, and it turns out that before you became a housing analyst for Housing Wire, you actually worked in real estate for many decades. You were a senior loan officer, and I was also intrigued to learn that your whole family has been in real estate for many, many decades. I'm kind of curious to know what it is that you learn from working in real estate as a loan officer or in some other capacity that other people may not appreciate about the housing market? For me, it's, you know, how mortgages are given to home buyers and uh, are they safe products? And I always say that, you know, economics done right should be boring, but housing debt should be even more boring. And that's what we have right now. You know, after 2010, majority of Americans have 30-year fixed products not very difficult to understand. It's just a fixed low debt product and your wages rise. That is a good thing because it's very boring. And you know, in the in the previous expansion, especially during the housing bubble years, there was a lot of mortgage debt that was given to 
homeowners that uh, it's not a fixed uh, long-term debt product. So you're, you're talking, to be clear, about what was happening in the 2000s, so like the early to mid-2000s before the big housing bubble and burst of later yes, that decade, right? specifically okay. 2002 to 2005. That's when a lot of the what I call exotic mortgages were given to home buyers. And now it isn't. And I think understanding that helps me as an analyst because our, you know, our family's been in banking since the late 1950s and this is kind of all we do. So uh, that background really helped with my economic work uh, over the last decade. And when you were younger and you were just kind of starting out in housing, did you see as it was happening how dangerous it was that mortgages started to morph into these weird things in the 2000s? I mean, did you think that that was going to precede some huge, you know, expansion and then a bubble bursting as it did? You know, the debt was never safe and eventually all speculative bubbles, you know, blow up. And uh, understanding how mortgages are, are done and given and the underlying underwriting of a mortgage, it wasn't a very healthy uh, housing market then. Now, for the last 10 years, awesome. It's wonderful. I always give credit to our country. We made mortgage debt boring again, and boring is a good thing. <laughs> You're you're paradoxically very excited about yes. mortgage debt being boring again. Yes, okay. yes. We made uh, mortgage debt great again by making it very simple and boring, and boring is good for the housing market. Okay, you're, you're anticipating something we're going to talk about later in the interview, which is the extent to which the recent big increase in home prices reflects or does not reflect what was happening in the 2000s, what the differences are, what the similarities are. But first, I actually just want to ask in really simple terms, where are we in terms of the housing market? You know, we know that the price of housing has gone up quite a bit in the last couple of years. So just kind of give us a sense of the landscape and, you know, where are we in terms of like how high prices are and how high rents are, how those things compare. And yeah, just give us like a general summary of what's going on. Well, my work is really separated into two periods. I've always said that housing from 2008 to 2019 will have a very soft recovery where mortgage debt expansion doesn't really take off. But years 2020 to 2024 is just going to be different. And what happened is we ran into this period with the biggest housing demographic patch ever and the lowest mortgage rates ever. Don't make it complicated. Demand is there. Rates are low. Supply has been falling since 2014. And home prices has just taken off in a very unhealthy fashion, which was the biggest concern I had during this very unique five-year period for the United States of America. Yeah, let me let me untangle some of the things you just said, because there was actually quite a bit there. So you're using the language of economics of supply and demand. And since prices are rising so much right now, it would imply that demand for homes is going up a lot faster than the supply of homes, or at least that the supply can't quite catch up to demand. And there's a few different potential reasons why. And you mentioned one of them. You called it the demographic trend what exactly does that mean? Ages 28 and 34 currently in America are the biggest group in U.S. history. Uh, the first time median home buyer is 33. So naturally, 
years 2020 to 2024 would have the biggest housing demographic patch, meaning young people running into their first-time homebuyer years ever. So that's one group. Then you put people who have to move up, move down, cash buyers, investors, you put it all together. Uh, demand is going to be very solid and stable during this period. But when inventory falls, like it has you know, for many years, it just facilitates too much demand when inventory is at a very low level, which is what we all know right now is at the lowest levels ever recorded in U.S. history. Yeah, we'll we'll get to inventory in a second. Stay with me on demand for a moment. Um, when you talk about a demographic patch and you talk about that age group from 28 to 34, essentially it sounds like what you're saying is that you have a lot of young people, young adults who have aged into the age group where people typically buy their first homes. And because there's so many people in that group now, you have a lot of folks who are you know, making a little more money than they were in their early 20s, say, and there's just a lot more of them. And so they're looking for houses. And when you add that many people to the housing market, it drives up prices just because so many more people want it. And I'm also wondering if there are some folks in their, I don't know, late 30s and early 40s who were not able to buy a house when they were younger, right, because maybe they were, I don't know, working in the aftermath of the big financial crisis when wage growth was really slow. But now for the last few years, actually, wage growth has been pretty good. And so they also are kind of catching up in terms of you know buying houses. And so if you have those two things happening at once, that could potentially be driving a lot of demand. Is that is that part of the story as well? The millennials are the biggest home buyers in America. They have been the biggest home buyers in America for the last few years. That age group of 28 to 34 is 32 and a half million. So the eldest millennial is 40. So uh, it's just a massive, massive group of people. And how I kind of explained it over the years is, you know, people are simple. They rent, they date, they mate, they get married. <laughs> Three and a half years after marriage, they have kids. This is the decade where you have a lot of Americans ages 30 to 39 and they typically buy homes. So it's really that simple if you look at it uh, through that light. Yeah, and, and this is also part of your story for why the years 2020 to 2024 are going to see a lot of rises in home prices. And you have been saying that for a while now, since before the pandemic. And I'm kind of curious to know if the pandemic itself has altered some of that story, either accelerating the trend or holding it back in some way. And the reason I asked the question is because there have been all these narratives that you hear about people leaving cities, looking for houses in the suburbs, looking for bigger houses, people able to work from home during the pandemic. And that might be a permanent or a semi-permanent trend for a lot of people. And so they're just looking for more houses. And so I wonder if that has played a role or if really it's just been that some long-awaited, perhaps dormant trends like these demand dynamics that you just described, these demographic trends are just arriving now. And it's just sort of a coincidence that this is happening at the same time as a pandemic. Before COVID even, even was whispered, I talked about how Americans don't live in apartment and condos when their families get bigger. So naturally, in years 2020 to 2024, you would have had people moving anyway. 
What the work-from-home model has done, which I think is a very, very exciting new variable in housing, has created the ability for a lot more people to move. So that in itself has been uh, uh, an impactful factor, but housing broke out before COVID hit us. It paused for about six weeks because everyone was scared about what was happening. And then we just kind of shot back on trend. So work from home model is definitely a key factor in some people moving. This would have happened without COVID anyway. Yeah. I'm also wondering the extent to which faster wage growth in the last few years, including, by the way, the year before the pandemic, is playing into this because you can't imagine a scenario where even if a lot of people age into that 28 to 34 age group or even a little bit older and haven't bought houses yet and maybe they want to, but they just don't make enough money to, right? If that had happened, you might still not be seeing this big surge in demand for housing. And in fact, we are still seeing that people live with their folks until later in life. And that that has been a gradual trend that's been going on for decades now. And so I guess I'm wondering to what extent it was necessary for wages, average wages to also climb in order for this prediction of yours that from 2020 to 2024, you'd see these rises in home prices to come true. The wage growth factor to me is more of a renting economic variable Hmm. because homeowners they make about $100,000 of income. Their median pay is just much higher than a natural renter. So that is the income that allows you to buy homes. And I mean, here's here's a simple way to look at it. Millions and millions of people buy homes. Uh, Post-1996, it's actually really rare in America to have home sales under 4 million. It's not so much of the wage growth as it is the median income, the higher base pay for people that are homeowners, or it's just so much more than renters. And what's also happened is when households form, you have dual incomes. Dual income housing or, or dual income households is the really the most important factor in terms of wages and incomes for home buyers because you've got two of them. So household formation and dual incomes to me are more important than wage growth. Wage growth really helps renters or let's say people living at home with their parents to be able to afford rent. But the total pay of especially college educated Americans who who just start off at a much higher median pay than most people, they kind of get into that ages 28 to 34 and they got the incomes needed, whether their wage growth is five or six percent or two to four percent. It's not that meaningful compared to the total whole base pay that the higher income brackets get or the middle class or the upper middle class. So wage growth is definitely important, but I think it really impacts the rental side more than it does the the home buyer side. Yeah. And what about mortgage rates? Because Mortgage rates for decades have been in a kind of steady downward decline. That has changed, by the way, in roughly the last, I think, six to nine months or so. They've been climbing and they seem to be shooting up now towards 4%. We're recording this on February 11th and it looks like mortgage rates are right around 3.7% for a 30-year mortgage. But actually, for the last like few decades, they've been in decline. And you can see how this would affect somebody's calculus if they're thinking about buying a house because, yes, a house price might go up, 
But if your mortgage payment is still low, it'll still be affordable. So what role have have mortgage rates played in what's happening now in terms of your prediction of rising home prices 2020 to 2024? Definitely mortgage rates falling since 1981 is a huge factor. But to me, when mortgage rates really started to take a leg lower in 1996, Millions and millions of people bought homes with mortgages at eight, seven, six, five, four. We got to three percent. So it helps people with their cash flow to be able to afford homes when home prices have risen so much. That's why if you look at home prices from 1996 and on, they've taken a big move higher versus inflation. And you know, if you exclude the housing crash, they're continuously that trend. And what's happened is that a lot of these homeowners, they have a very low fixed debt cost while their wages are rising each year. And that's that really is the benefit of being an American homeowner, especially in the last 10 years. You bought your house, you've refinanced multiple times, and you're sitting pretty because your wages grow every year. And that debt payment, it just gets lower and lower benefit to the homeowner. Yeah. And so if we've got this demographic patch of people who are either leaving behind their parents' homes or leaving behind their apartments and going into buying a house for the first time, does it mean that the pressure on rents should not be as great as it is on housing prices and that at least renting will remain relatively more affordable or at least it won't be losing affordability as quickly as housing? What do you think? I was just as worried about rent inflation as I was about a home prices taking mm-hmm. off because, you know, with 32 and a half million people ages 28 to 34, so if they're still living at home, you know, or their roommates with wage growth, you can, hey, I'm going to rent my own place. I could leave my parents' house to come and rent on my own. There's so many people right now that need shelter that if they can't buy a home, and also, you know, it's not easy to buy a home these days, and you have to find somewhere to live. So some of the slippage into the rental inflation factor are people who can't buy a home and they got to get a one-year lease. So the rent inflation for me was a big concern early last year, and we all could see what's going on. Mother demographics wins always, and we just have too many people needing shelter, whether it's home buying or it is renting. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious also about uh, geographic differences. One of the fastest growing um, home price markets in the country right now is my hometown of Tampa, Florida. And I was recently there, I was visiting some cousins. And this is purely anecdotal, but one of the things they've seen is just that a lot of folks are moving to Tampa from out of town. Tampa's kind of booming right now. And in particular, there's a lot of people moving there who are looking to buy in like the nicer parts of town. And so what ends up happening is this thing where prices go up and up and up, including, for example, you know, the home prices of the houses where my cousins live. But what they say is like, yeah, obviously, it's great that like the price of our house, if we were to sell, would be way higher. But since they want to stay in Tampa, they would just be going to some other house that also has a hugely inflated price. And so they end up staying where they are, understandably. And I'm sort of wondering to what extent, like, this dynamic where house prices go up, but also you don't have a lot of people changing houses, precisely because even if you were to sell yours for a lot of money, you'd have to pay a ton 
of money for another house and whether that in any way slows like, I don't know, the clearance of the housing market somehow or if that has some effect on how long prices end up staying high, in part because their unwillingness to sell also means that there aren't as many houses on the market, right? So anyways, I'm just kind of curious to know what a trend like that means for a local housing market um, and maybe for the national housing market. This has been a big theme of my work for many years. We call it housing tenure, the amount of time an American household lives in their house from 1985 to 2007, it was five years. From 2008 to 2022, it's gone past 10 years in some parts of the U.S., uh, 15, 16, 17 years. I've been in my home for 17 years. People don't need to move as much. And one of the things I've talked about over the years is if you look at the family sizes in America since the 1950s, they've been getting smaller. If you look at a median square size home that was built in 1975, it was 1,500 square foot. It got all the way to 2,700 square foot in 2014. So the home that we're producing for people could be one and done for a family of four. So people are just staying in their homes longer. And then when home prices accelerate, yeah, you could sell your house, but you have to live somewhere. So unless you're downsizing, which a lot of people in states like my my own state, California, everywhere else looks cheap to us. Tampa looks cheap. Texas looks cheap. Boise, Idaho looks cheap. So we can sell our very expensive California homes and move to any place and have a huge down payment. And that seems cheaper to people from uh, high cost uh, states. That plays into this equation as well, which means that somebody who might be looking to move thinking, I, you know what, it's great, but I'm sitting on this equity. I can't really buy anything that's, that suits my lifestyle better. So they stay in their house longer. And that is also one of the bigger problems with the housing market is, you know, or facilitating home price growth to be too strong. Yeah, I guess my question is also, should we worry about that lack of dynamism? Like in what way yes. is that a problem? Yes, it's a problem because it means housing is stuck. You know, from 2002 to 2005, during the housing bubble years, it was a credit boom, right? And then demand fell off a cliff and you had inventory. Here, it's different. Homeowners have never looked better on paper than they do. And they're sitting in their house. There's no real reason to, to move up or move down. Some of them do, you know, jobs, divorce, kids. But uh, if you don't, you just sit there and the natural inventory levels fall which has been the case since 2014. Yeah, let's talk about inventory now. And first of all, let's define what we mean by inventory. Is it just as simple as houses that are available to be bought, that are on the market, you can buy them now? Is that is that typically what we mean by housing inventory? Active listings, you could you could label them that way. Okay. That that could that could buy. And this has been something I've been concerned about for a while because if you look at housing data, since 2014, inventory levels have been falling slowly, but heading down. Uh, even in 2018, when mortgage rates got to 5%, total inventory levels didn't budge much. And I bring that up because a lot of people say, well, if rates go high enough, it'll move the in inventory channels. It didn't in 2018. So when demand has picked up, mortgage demand has been picking up since 2014 as well. 
So we were about to hit this unique period in time with the biggest housing demographic patch with falling inventory and rising mortgage demand. And what has it created? The lowest inventories ever recorded in U.S. history in 2020, 2021, and now in 2022. So yes, it is a problem. Yeah, I was looking at one of the graphics in uh, a piece of yours, and it showed how long a typical house stays on the market, I guess, after it's been listed. And even just a couple of years ago, it was up around like close to 40 days, more or less, I think somewhere between 38 and 40 days. And now it's something like 19 days, right? Like it's been cut in half. It's it, it's a terrible problem. It's when I when days on markets are teenagers, that's never a good thing. <laughs> so you want to be between 30 to 45 days because it gives people choices. There's no bidding wars. A seller can put their home on the market and feel comfortable that when they sell their house, they have a home they can buy. When you are this low, I mean, there are parts of the U.S. where inventory is five days, seven days. You know, a friend of mine in Montana, she said she sold their home in five hours with multiple offers. This is not a healthy market because the days on market are too low and it facilitates higher home price growth and it creates a lot of stress for home buyers and home sellers. It's something that uh, I always struggle with is I'll hear stories or narratives out there about some of the things that you just mentioned. So, for example, put your house on the market and it's gone in literally hours. Forget about 19 days, literally hours. In some cases, you know, somebody will list a home and they'll get bids way above what they had ever even hoped to get. And they'll even the sellers will be quite shocked by it. I think there's more all cash purchases now, right, than there used to be. And so you hear these stories and if you read like local press from different places, and sometimes I'll do this, you'll see them anecdotally, but I I can never quite tell like at the national level exactly how big of a problem it is, which is why, by the way, that graphic that you showed is, is very useful. That's a national graphic. But I always suspect that also there's geographical variation within the country of where this is happening, where it's not happening. So can you just give us a little bit of context to understand, I guess, how hard it is to actually just buy a home and what people are seeing, whether they're buyers or sellers and how we should think about it in terms of the whole American housing market and not just a story that you might hear coming out of out of a place in Montana or something like that. Well, of course, there's, you know, places like Montana and Boise that are seeing 30 to 40 percent home price growth. So when we look at national home price uh, levels, 2020 was about 10 percent. 2021 was about 13 percent, 13, 14 percent total. The days on market means that the demand is simply too strong that it doesn't even allow a home to sit idle for 30 days. And depending on where you are regionally, a lot of investors or cash buyers will go to areas that, whoa, this is a great place that if I put my cash here, I could get a renter. And they buy homes for cash and they rent them out in a, let's say, a low interest rate environment, that rental income to them is very good. So that is one aspect of the housing market. Cash buyers 
post-2008 have been historically double the percentage of sales than what it used to be before the housing crisis. So you have a natural higher cash buyer and you have a natural higher investor as well. That is something that has happened uh, really uh, past 2010. It stayed with us. Early on, in uh, after the housing crash, cash buyers were 30 to 40% of the market, but they were buying distressed homes and flipping them. Uh, we don't have that anymore. The buyers we have now that are investors, I mean, investors have been kind of falling in terms of flipping, but they buy these homes to rent them out. Uh, because again, not everyone can buy a home, but the wage growth is really picking, especially on the bottom end, which means that the landlords can ask for more rent. That is something that is different about uh, what's happened recently in the last few years than, let's say, uh, uh, 15, 20 years ago. So definitely cash buyers, investors, mortgage buyers, which are the biggest driver of the housing market, all of these people put together are sending days on market to a teenager level. And uh, there are some areas of the U.S. where it's four or five days. I know here in Orange County, California, or Southern California, we were we were having days on the market at seven or eight on average. So it's just inventory is just too low, and there's too many people uh, uh, out there. And as soon as something comes up, and I don't know if you anyone remembers the game Hungry Hungry Hippos in the 1980s, where you know you just slap the hippo and there's a few balls out there. There's one or two balls. That's yeah. it. And it's really that simple that the inventory problem has gotten worse and worse as the demand has picked up in years 20 and 2021 and early on in 2022. Yeah, there's something that's a bit of a mystery also about why inventory hasn't kept up with demand. As you yourself noted, this was a problem that was predictable. You predicted it, right? And when there's a shortage of the supply of something that's in demand, when supply is not catching up to demand, you know, usually you could point to a failure in the market. And in the housing market, I think this could be down to a few different things. One possibility is that there's a lot of zoning laws that restrict the ability of home builders to build as many homes as would be possible without these laws where people really want to buy homes, right? And in some cases, they don't let them build, I don't know, like apartment complexes that are high enough to accommodate all the people that want to live in a specific area. That's one possibility. Another possibility is just that the cost of like the labor has gone up. There's not enough labor, perhaps a shortage of labor, or that the cost of something else that goes into buying homes also could have gone up. You know, we've got the problem of lumber prices, for example, in the last few years that have been super volatile. There's tariffs on certain things that you need to buy houses. And so when we look at the failure of inventory to keep up with demand, why aren't there enough houses? What do you think is the dominant explanation for that? I have a much different take than my fellow housing economists on this. And it's really rooted on the fact that our system in America is driven by profits, not what the society wants. So naturally, the builders build only enough to where they are very comfortable of selling homes. They never oversupply a market uh, because if you oversupply a market, it hurts your profit margins. So they've been very good on this in terms of building enough single family homes because that's really their big driver 
to keep their profits going. And we can go back to 1996 to 2005, the housing construction boom that people talked about. It didn't reduce home prices back then. Home prices took off because the builders will build as long as new home sales grow. And in the previous expansion, and, and this is so much of my work, the new home sales market had the weakest recovery ever. And because of that, housing starts had the weakest recovery ever. So people kept on talking about, well, why don't the builders just build more? The demand for new homes wasn't there. The existing home sales market is their competitor. It's this massive market that cheaper homes all over the country. So they are going to go slow and steady as long as they believe they can you know, sell a home at a price that makes the money, they'll do it. And that isn't the most efficient system because every decade that we live in this country, more and more existing homes are, are have been built and that's their biggest competitor. So the builders are just going to do enough to push it through. Zoning laws, of course, the legal battles, that to me is more of a renter's market where people just don't want renters in their cities. And that fight between Yimby and NIMBY, it's going to be here for a while. Any kind of victory that the Yes in My Backyard people get is a positive for housing. Uh, but when I think about home buyers, I don't think of people with condos or apartments. I think of single family homes. That's what people want. People love that. And not only that, we're creating an industry where single family rentals are coming in vogue. So we're asking the builders to do something that is against their financial interest. So don't look to them to be somebody that's going to oversupply a market because in the in the last expansion, many years they had missed sales. So they were just going to go very slow because they have to protect their profit margins where construction productivity is not made building homes cheaper, labor costs, land costs, regulation costs. It's very expensive to build a new home and to sell it for, for a profit that they feel good. So they will just go slow here. So a lot of that makes sense, but I think it does leave open a big question, which is this. A lot of parts of the American economy, most of the American economy, I would say, is also driven by profits. I mean, that's why companies are in the businesses they're in. But what you would expect over time is for some of those profits to be competed away. Because when you have a company with really big profit margins, then other potential entrants into that market, other possible companies will say, great, I want some of those super high profits too. So then they get involved and then you have competition. And over time, those profits get competed away. And in the housing market, that would mean that more builders are building homes if it were a competitive market. What you're describing where builders basically say, we're not going to build enough houses to bring prices down because we like protecting our profit margins. That sounds like the behavior, frankly, of a cartel. That's what OPEC does when they all get together and they agree to not produce as much oil as they could to protect their profit margins. And so I guess my follow-up question is, does it mean that there's a big shortage of competition in the home building market? Because that sounds like it would be a huge problem. There's not enough competition. And also it's an industry that's, you know, when rates rise, new home sales go down and Builders got, you know, a lot of builders got obliterated during the housing bubble crash. So what was left 
wasn't as much as we saw maybe in previous decades in terms of the growth of the population and the growth of builders. But also we have to ask ourselves, are we a society that actually wants home prices to go down? Because our economic system is whenever the economy is going bad, it's the job to lower interest rates. What does that do? That helps housing. Homeowners love home prices rising. Realtors sell their house as, hey, it's the best investment you can make. So how can an industry sell its product as the best investment you'll ever make and then also say, we want more homes to cool down home prices or maybe bring it down? So there's a lot of conflict as a society we have around the housing industry or the housing market because we talk about we want more homes and yet everything we do doesn't really facilitate it because if prices go down, People start to worry. They'll say, oh, something's wrong with the economy. Your net worth is down. The Federal Reserve has to cut rates or something to that nature. So we are conflicted as humans in this housing economy. Do we really want home prices to go down? Because people love it when home prices go up. And it's the homeowner that benefits. And the, the majority of the stock out there for housing are homeowners. So the builders go, hey, we're just going to build enough to make our money and push on. And might I add... We saw human greed really kick in uh, in 2020 and 2021 and 2022. The builders, oh, lumber prices, labor costs, everything. Hey, we're just going to pass it on to the consumer because we have pricing power now. Sustainability, now we don't have to worry about that. Right now we have pricing power, so let's use it. So you see a clear deviation in home prices for the builders in 2020 and 2021. They, lumber prices, oh, don't worry about it. We'll make it on the margins. Builders' margins look great. They passed it on. Home sellers, you think they're talking about sustainability? No, let's put the get the highest bid possible. Let's, let's get the easiest way we could sell this house at the highest price. We're conflicted. We're not talking about let's keep things slow and steady to, to help home prices not go up. We as a society love home prices rising. Governments talk about housing as forced savings. We can't get off of that. So it's an issue. So when people say, well, we need to build more homes, nobody's really going to do it. And do we really even want it? Because when home prices go down, people complain. So it's we, we're, we're terribly conflicted around what we really want in housing. We talk about it. I'll give you a great example. The mortgage interest deduction, when the discussion was, well, we need to get rid of all of that, the National Association of Realtors said, no, you can't do that. Home prices would fall 10%. That means inventory went up, people that have homes, home price growth would slow, it would make it affordable. No, we can't have home prices go up. Why? Because you talk about housing as your best investment, and then we've done everything we can to keep that investment going. That's a conflict that I don't think changes anytime soon. Yeah, on the point of societal contradictions and societal conflict, uh, I totally agree that it's there. I think the comment, well, we as a society don't actually want home prices to fall. We don't actually want more houses. It really depends on who's included in the we, because I think there's a pretty stark contrast between different groups within society of where they would fall on the spectrum, right? If you're a renter, then of course you want more homes to be available so that you can maybe buy your first home and it's more affordable. If you've been using your house as your primary savings vehicle, then yeah, of course, if you're nearing retirement, you don't want the price of your main asset to fall. So it really depends on 
who you are. And I think here we also get into like issues of societal distribution of wealth. And this is a big deal here. I was reading something uh, before our chat uh, that was put out by the New York Fed that was really interesting a few years ago. And it was looking at home ownership rates by racial and ethnic background. And it looked at white, black, and Hispanic home ownership rates. And what it found was that the white home ownership rate was 75%. For black and Hispanic homeowners or for black and Hispanic residents, it was less than 50%. For black residents, it's closer to 40%. I mean, this is a huge, dramatic difference in who has access to that kind of wealth and to that kind of an asset and a savings vehicle. And you'd get a similar kind of breakdown, by the way, if you do it just by income, right? Like income distribution. As you yourself said, the median home buyer has quite a high income relative to what the rest of the country does, right? And so even though I think about two thirds of the country um, is a homeowner, right? For that one third, that's very heavily concentrated in folks who don't make as much money. And so it's really interesting to think about societally, when we talk about societal goals, well, it depends on where you are and it depends on who you're emphasizing, who you're prioritizing. And that, that by the way, that applies to you know, a lot of us and it applies to policymakers. It really applies to everybody. So in response to your question, who wants more houses? Well, I think it's a lot of people. I'm certainly one of them, but I'm a basement dwelling podcast host. So who cares what I want? But I think it's actually a lot of people. It's just that, you know, when it comes to like who sets the terms and what are we emphasizing, we've landed at this place where there is a stark contrast between different groups in society. And I got to tell you, I think a lot of this comes down to the question of how do you see housing? Do you see it as a place to live? Do you see it as an investment? Obviously, I think most people see it as both. But then on the spectrum, like what are you choosing to emphasize and how you answer that question? What do you see housing as has profound consequences, not just for somebody's individual approach to home ownership but for how we societally approach the very concept of home ownership and how we approach the housing market. So that's my response. But let me, I said a lot there. So let me, let me give you a chance to, to, to come back at me as well. You know, there's one common theme I've used for the last 10 years when I talk about housing is housing is the cost of shelter to your own capacity to own the debt. It's not an investment. And when you look at it at shelter cost, you have to be able to provide society with enough shelter options where it doesn't even have to be a home buyer, but it has to be an affordable rent or affordable housing. So what is affordable housing? What does that even look like? I've asked this question for a decade. Nobody really gives me a correct answer because it's based on somebody's own view of, well, here in California, a $400,000 home would be really cheap. $400,000 home in Alabama might be very expensive. The incomes that you make is where you can actually think if, if your shelter is, uh, is affordable or not. So you have to break the mold. And what I've written over the years is that the private sector is not going to do it. The states are in you know, fighting over uh, uh, laws and regulations and, and and that's going on for, for many years. So I'd offer the solution of the federal government has to just go in and 
give the states or builders money to build. And if the states don't want to do it, give it to other states and just break the business cycle model so you can oversupply a market. Because when housing gets softer, the builders pull back. And as long as that happens, you're still working with the supply and demand equilibrium. I always like to show people, if you look at housing starts and new home sales, they move perfectly in line with each other after 1996. So break that mold. Pay people to build more housing than, let's say, the private sector uh, thinks you need. And if states don't allow it, take the money from them and give it to other states. Start letting these people fight over it. And there you can break the final factor that keeps housing construction bay. Because in, in reality, let's just, let's just say hypothetical rates go up to 5%, housing slows, the builders slow down their production, we're back at it again. And we're going to keep on doing this because the system we have now is not designed to oversupply. And then there's this huge elephant in the room where people say, well, the baby boomers are all going to age out and die. And what are we going to do with their homes? So the builders go, we're not going to build oversupply. In about 10 years, you're going to see, you know, 20, 30 million homes come on the market, you know. So there's all this fighting between the private sector. So if you really want something done, the federal government's going to have to step in. Until that, we are basically conflicted in our same stance right here. Home prices are rising. Yeah, raw, raw, shish, kebab, people like me says, no, whoa, this is way too much. And this constant battle in the housing discussion will always happen. As long as this system is here, don't look for too many changes. Yeah, and so you've been sort of anticipating what would happen in the years 20 to 2024 for a while, the rise in home prices with all this demand interacting with the decline in inventory what are you seeing now? What do you what do you think happens after 2024 with all the usual caveats about predicting the future? Um, but in terms of the trends that you can see, the big trends that might be interrupted by something else or might be thrown off course, uh, what do you see? You know, I've always stopped at 2024 for a reason because I was concerned to see how much home price growth can happen in this unique five-year period. But looking after 2024... A what, lot is the answer so yeah, far, yeah, right? Yeah, it could be a lot. A lot, yeah. That's that's why I I keep on saying this is the most unhealthiest housing market post-2010. But one thing about in the future is people forget Gen Z is massive. We have young workers, young consumers, where other countries, Japan doesn't have it, Europe doesn't have it, not even China has it. You know, the total population of the millennials and Gen Z together is bigger than the total population in Japan. So we're going to have replacement workers and consumers past 2024. Uh, but this period is just a once in a lifetime unique bump that uh, can't be replicated anymore. So I think going out in the future, does immigration grow? Does birth rates pick up? Those things are, are something that you look forward to 2024 and on for the rest of the decade. And then later down the line, the baby boomers who have a lot of homes or in home equity, what happens to them when they die off? Because I've always been a the baby boomers are going to live there until they die off person. There was a notion called the silver tsunami uh, in the last decade. It was, it, was a, it was a premise that as soon as the baby boomers all get in their mid-60s, they're all going to sell their homes and downsize and the millennials can't buy it. So you're going to have massive price declines. That never happened. That was a marketing gimmick. But 
in the end, nature wins, right? Death is a very potent economic force. So the question is down the line, what happens to all those homes that the boomers own? They just pass it off to their children. Uh, do they? Is it just become a, a, an investment vehicle for high cash investors that will just take them off and say, "Hey, listen, you rent rental income here." That is something that you know I'm going to engage after 2024. But again, this period is just a concern because home prices can accelerate so much, and they have that uh, I'll wait to see how much damage is done. Because for myself, I've talked about this period, as long as home prices only grew 23% in five years, it's manageable, right? Because of wage growth and everything, it's not too bad. We've already broken that in two years. So I'm on first stage price alert from now on for the next three years. And of course, we're starting 2022 with fresh new all-time lows in inventory with really sub 4% unemployment rates for people ages 25 and over and mortgage rates at 4%. That is not a healthy backdrop for anybody who wants moderation in home price growth. On the question of what happens when some of the boomers pass on uh, and, and leave their homes behind, One thing I've always been curious about is what about changing tastes? You know, when you buy a home, sometimes when you design a home or you renovate a home, often it's very customized. It's it's what you want for yourself. It's a specific kind of home. But over time, people's tastes can change. Like maybe the kinds of homes that the boomers or other preceding generations had just aren't the kinds of homes that newer generations want. And... I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Do we just not have enough experience with a housing market this big and with such a big generation changing over to know how changing taste could affect house buying and house prices and the housing market overall? What do you think? You know, there's a lot of money that investors put into homes to remodel them and kind of make them modern and rent them out or sell them. You know, my parents were baby boomers. They had a 5,000 square foot home in Laguna Hills, California. And when they were trying to sell it, anybody who looked at it didn't really like the design (laughs) because it's their own taste. So the eventual buyer, younger family, you know, said, hey, uh, we'll buy this, but we're going to change everything. So it does actually help the economy in the sense that a lot of people buy homes and they just kind of remodel a lot of things. I mean, in fact, we have a society that we have shows about this. You could fix up any home and people watch it and everyone thinks uh, they're an expert on that. So there's a lot of time and investment and money that's make whatever house you have now into anything you want. So that is going to stay here for a very long time because the housing stock we have, a lot of we have a lot of old homes and uh, they need a lot of work. So either an investor does it or a home buyer does it, comes in and fixes up the place. And uh, I think that is something that's gonna be here for uh, two or three decades easily, just because of some of the homes that have been purchased, you know, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even the 1990 homes uh, are considered old and out of style to what a younger generation and Gen Z will be different than the millennials and they'll have their own tastes. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of turnover on, on, on housing styles over the years. How have your views on housing, individual homes, you know, where people choose to live, how have your views on the housing market overall philosophically 
changed over time. Given that you've been in the business for so long, first you were a player in it, now you're an analyst of it. You know, clearly this is something that you've thought about a while. You've now observed a huge credit boom and then the bust, the financial crisis, what's happened in all the time since. Now there's a pandemic. I'm just kind of curious to know if you could look back at 1996 you versus where you are now, how your understanding of housing has changed. One thing I've learned over the years is that housing is like the sacred cow in America. Because unlike the stock market, where it's like 10% of the population owns most of the stocks, we have a lot more homeowners. And what happened after the housing crash is that the with social media and, and all the uh, avenues, the scare tactics of uh, talking about housing, crashing, everything, everybody gets so involved in it. They, they, they want to know about it because the home is sacred to them. And over time, I've learned to realize that this is just bigger and bigger into the mindset of, of Americans as, as home ownership rates are heading toward uh, 66%. Uh, and I didn't realize how important it was in 1996. Uh, and over time, you know, especially after 2010, boy, when you get that home, that's your home. It's a 30-year fixed loan. You're going to be here for a long time. It isn't like you flipping or moving around all the time. And people just love their homes and they want to live in an area that they, they are comfortable with. And it's just for me to watch and not realize how important it was in 96 and 2002 or 2010. And now it's growing to this, to where everyone is, we're selling our homes, 66 offers, yeah. And someone like me is like, oh boy, <laughs> this is not good. You, you, you just can't beat it. It is, a, it is a very, very emotional and financial place that a lot of Americans invest their time and money and thought process in. Logan Motoshami, uh, thanks so much, man. This is such an important, important topic. And yeah, this conversation has been a real delight. I'm glad we finally got to do it. It's my pleasure to be here. And that's our show for today. You can find links to Logan's website and his writings for Housing Wire at the show notes for today's episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.